theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning, theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Amy. Good morning, Dr. Joy. How are you today? I'm great. I am excited about our interview today. We're going to interview Crystal Harris. She's outstanding. She is a professor. She's a minister. She's a psychologist. I'm so excited. Can you tell us about Crystal Harris? Yes, indeed. So she has made herself available for so many opportunities uh -huh. at, in the community and at GSU. So that will be really interesting to see how she's made herself be in the right place at the right time. Her background is with counseling, psychology, and pastoral care and counseling. Her PhD came from the University of Notre Dame, and that's in psychology. So as a social psychologist, Dr. Crystal Harris is engaged in social issues that affect both GSU and the Metro Chicago community. She looks at problems systematically and builds forums for ongoing dialogue about the needs and solutions to these issues. Her background in counseling and mental health has been an asset to creating programs about others sources of stress and depression and suicide prevention. So since coming to GSU in 2008, Dr. Harris has taught undergraduate psychology courses, first year seminar courses, interdisciplinary studies. This experience-based learning is fundamental to her teaching philosophy. I know I'm gonna ask her about this, about creating community through service learning and having that deeper process of strengthening the student satisfaction in their education experience. So we welcome Dr. Crystal Harris to the show to talk to us today. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, Dr. Crystal Harris is a powerhouse. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. So I have a first question for you, Dr. Harris. I want to first talk to you about being a career changer. I was blown away in reading your resume and your bio. And like you, well, Amy and I both, we're career changers. And mm -hmm. sometimes we associate career changers as being kind of unhappy in their current roles. But I found out, I know for me, that it was more about how can I be better? How can I be more influential? And how can I do something more meaningful? I want to hear how you made this change. What was it for you? What made you decide to change careers? I mean, to a psychologist, to a professional educator, you have the whole religious thing going on. You know, what was it for you? The, the real story is, as a high school student, when I was asked what I wanted to be, it was that I wanted to be a psychologist. An interesting piece of trivia is that my mom, who was born in 1937, and who was a public school teacher in Harlem for 30 years, 
also wanted to be a psychologist. I don't know if you remember who uh, Mamie Phipps Clark is, but she was yes. part of the doll experiment in Harlem, 1960s, when my mom was a public school teacher. And she just thought it was the coolest thing in the world to be a psychologist and particularly a psychologist that was sort of changing the conversation about the role of race and how one views your race in terms of child development. So as a public school teacher, of course, child development was her thing. So I grew up in this household where I was hearing these conversations and uh, my own desire to be a psychologist was really more because I thought I wanted to be a marriage and family therapist. I wanted to be like a family therapist. I had seen a lot of family drama, family arguments. I myself am one of those people who avoids conflict and doesn't like to argue. I'm a talker but I'm not one who likes being in the presence of people arguing and yelling, despite growing up in a home where <laughs> yelling was the norm. So I saw myself as the type of psychologist who would help these families navigate these complex dynamics. And I was also a child of divorce. So that was what I grew up thinking I wanted to do. Well, fast forward, you know how when you're a high school student, um, what you should and shouldn't do and what pays this. And I was really strong in math and science. I, I went to Catholic school for 12 years and I really loved Catholic school. It was a great time to be in Catholic school in the 80s. I graduated in 1984 for high school. So I got a lot of free rides to get math and science bachelor's degree. And my parents were like, and you want to do what? Like, why don't you want to be doing one of these things? So they started shipping me off to all these pre-engineering, pre-science, women in STEM, blacks in STEM, summer camps, weekend retreats, and they all gave you money for scholarship. Like if you went, just got a free ride to go to this school, that school, and the other school. So long story short, I caved. So I always was supposed to be a psychologist. So I sort of <laughs> lost my way and I picked up a couple of alternate free degrees. <laughs> But I, I mean, I do think that the other part of my story is that by being in STEM and being in corporate America and having that um, life of the corporate executive who is sort of on that rat race chasing the dollar, I think that also helped me have a better appreciation of the issues and how complex the issues are around a lot of the things that I'm interested in now. So it gives me sort of like that different context that I wouldn't have had if I had gone straight into psychology. But I also feel that a lot of how I think about problem solving and research and even the integration of teaching and public service is very much informed by this corporate project management style of thinking, the systems type thinking. They, they work together in, in sort of a bizarre way, even today. You engineer it together. <laughs> I do, right, right. I think Joy can speak to this as well, but every career, every job, maybe not career, mm -hmm. every job I've had up to this point in my life has informed the way I teach. There are skills that play mm -hmm. out in the classroom. It doesn't matter what that job I had in the past. It could have been learning how to unjam a copier. Well, that certainly came in handy whenever I was a teacher. But you have lots of experience as a social advocate, a psychologist, leader, financial literacy, and social justice. And you've been a faculty in residence. And what are you passionate about now? And how? where do you choose to spend your energy? Yeah, well, I think 
everything that I've done, all the different diverse approaches or positions or job titles or whatever, I think one of the things they have in common is that I've been a person who was interested in leading change, be that individual change, family change, organizational change, systemic change. So there's a lot of complex problems in society today. And I think even in the classroom, I'm trying to equip students to think about how do we bring positive change into these systems that are not working as, well, they might even be working as they were designed to work, but they might not be working for the benefit of those constituents who find themselves caught up in the systems that are not working. Think healthcare, think public health in the pandemic, right? So these systems work very well for some people, and there are a lot of people who they do not work well for. So I think teaching people how to look at the problems from a systemic perspective and how do we influence change, how do we communicate that change, how do we advocate for that change, how do we write about that change, how do we get allies and hold our political leaders, whatever they may be, to task for them not really representing us well when it comes to meeting our needs in whatever that system may be. Whether we're talking about racism, sexism, financial literacy, residential services, student life, student organizations, the whole process of becoming a researcher, becoming a graduate student, getting through graduate school. Uh I think a lot of it can be traced back to that basic foundation. I was thinking that it's actually great to be over 50. I know that you're in that 50 club with me. And so it's great to be over 50 and you've raised your children. And Mm -hmm. now you have more control over your time and what you want to do with your time and all Mm -hmm. these advocacy things. You were on an interview with cable television, life coach for women over 50, which I just think is amazing. We could do such amazing things. Tell us about that interview. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I'm really passionate about now, as I think about like what is next for me, I don't have any plans to leave GSU at this point, but I do know that it's not going to be my last chapter. So at some point, I think you do have to be thinking about, well, what would you want to do next? Where is the next frontier? And as a, a Black woman in particular, who's over 50, I really would love to be more involved in the space of women as leaders and women as change agents outside of the academy. So I think where the academy is a great platform for doing certain things within education and within our students and changing our student lives. But you know, our our work has to go beyond the Ivy Tower. I, I love what I do in the classroom. I love, I'm a part of two different research teams, but I'm also really excited about when I have the opportunity to talk to women who don't have degrees and who don't have the opportunity to have the exposure that I've had or um, to read what I read and to be able to sort of translate that into another space where it still can be meaningful and hopefully inspiring. So that interview was really about sharing, again, my story. (laughs) So I was really being interviewed as a person who had made a successful career change. I actually was under 50 when I made my change from corporate America to higher education. I believe that there is probably yet another transition in my future outside of the Ivy Tower. I think so much of what I do, I want it to to last. I want it to have a legacy that's beyond the academy. Uh And so I think that I was asked to do that at the beginning of the summer, at the beginning of the pandemic. So I had like all summer to think about it. And it has really sort of inspired me even now to think about 
you know, how do I make the legacy that I'm building at Governor State within the IDSS program, within the students in the IDSS program, like what is the next step for GSU or for my role in GSU and how do I use that to successfully catapult into you know, whatever the next space is. I think we always have to be thinking about that. As yeah, we, we, Amy and I talk about being a reflective practitioner all the time mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. that leads us to the next phase. So I'm glad that I don't have to ask you, how are you better because of COVID? And I see that you have totally taken advantage and used that time to be reflective about what's next and leaving your legacy. We really want to hear more about your interest in mentoring female students, especially in finding leadership mm -hmm. opportunities. Yeah, you know, IDSS, we had an external review the first year I was in this position about maybe four years ago now. And one of the things we learned is that the average IDSS student is a first generation student, but is also a woman of color who's over 35. And as a result, they often show up less academically prepared and also feeling very self-conscious about the academic preparation that they have. That's not saying that's the only type of student that's active in the IDSS program, but that is the student who's most likely to drop out and quit if they don't get some really important mentoring experiences and career. We designed a course called Career Planning and Decision-Making. So having them really be reflective about what has gone well, what has not gone well, what is it that they see themselves doing and helping them put systems in place to really develop building blocks to get them to that next career. That has been really sort of the thing I'm most proud of that we've done in the IDSS program. And so that course has actually been being offered as a topics course, but it'll be a required pro class and it will also be the first semester offering that they get when they transfer into the IDSS program. So we tend to have students who come to us with a lot of credits. They might've been to three, four different universities or even within GSU, they might've been in two or three different academic programs before they ended up in IDSS. So they have a hodgepodge of credits. And of course, when you're in that many different programs and you're not making progress, you end up more confused and feeling more self-defeated. That energy isn't structured in the right way. And so I really think that's one of the examples of like a type of thing that we're doing to kind of change the narrative around how do we equip them with the skills and the infrastructure to finish the degree and to just finish the degree and check the box, but to make that degree be a valuable, marketable tool that puts them where they need to go next. Let's talk about where they need to go next. I mean, it's important to have that bachelor's degree and to have something that connects it. I know that students who who change majors, they do end up with a lot of credits and, you know, where, what's the end goal here? But how important is it to have a higher degree even beyond a bachelor's and maybe for different demographics, people of color, women of color, other demographics as well? What are your thoughts on that? Well, for me, it's really important. I mean, I always, as I mentioned, even in high school, I knew that I wanted an advanced degree because you can't become a psychologist from 10th grade, 11th grade. So I always assumed that I would get a doctorate even before I finished my high school degree. I also knew even when I finished engineering school, I looked at doing a bunch of MBA programs. The funny thing is when I finished my mechanical engineering degree, I knew that I wanted a master's degree, but I thought I would rather die. And doing a mechanical engineering, I had just had enough. 
So I think that there's definitely a need for more women to have advanced education because what I think advanced education does is it allows you to be able to then translate education into some specific social issue. And I'm obviously thinking in terms of societal issues that I have a very social justice orientation that you can then use that degree to make a difference in. So like even in education, the professionalization of education, if you're concerned about the school system, there's a lots of ways that you can approach problems in the school system and not necessarily be a K through 12 teacher. You know, you might be interested in problems in criminal justice. You don't necessarily need a criminal justice degree to do that. You might need a criminal justice degree to do that. But there's a lot of problems in criminal justice that can be approached from a variety of professions. So that's one of the things that being in interdisciplinary studies really taught me that psychology didn't teach me. That most problems are too complex for one discipline to solve on its own and that you really have to have a multidisciplinary approach. I would argue in interdisciplinary study, the difference or the leverage that interdisciplinary studies has is it's the integration of multiple disciplines and not just the presence of multiple disciplines working on a social issue. And so that's one of the things that we teach in the theories course that I really have, you know, I don't know that I believed it at first because I didn't understand it. But now when I think about it, having been teaching for a while in interdisciplinary studies, you know, again, take this problem of the pandemic and the coronavirus, you really have to have people with backgrounds in health, in nursing, in public administration, in epidemiology, in business, in food service. I mean, there's really no aspect of society and human life. Education, have we not been majorly impacted by it? Absolutely. I mean, there's nobody that was not touched. It's a very complex set of issues and problems and most solutions have to be approached with that same level of complex thinking. By themselves, health can't do it. By themselves, business can't do it. As we think about how this mentoring of women and guiding them through I immediately think of my niece. When she graduated high school, she had the highest ACT score. Mm. And she could could select whatever college she wanted to go to with a free Mm -hmm. ride. Both her parents died shortly Mm. after that. So my sister and her father, and she made some decisions. She had children. And then she found herself getting into this program and getting into that program and getting into this program. And oftentimes, not only do you have all these credits that are all over the place, you also have generate debt. So as you're generating these credits, I know that you're generating debt. And then so I was like, you know, what do you say and how do you guide someone like that? Because I know that you're encountering these women who have found themselves in this place with these sporadic credits and all of this debt. And how, how do I catapult to the next level? when I have all of this baggage behind me. Yeah, and I think the key is, you know, what's done is done and we can't look back. And what you have to do is make sure that every credit you enroll in from here to four is a credit that you finish, that you excel at and counts towards the degree that you want. And I think the key is when you're looking at career options, if you're going into the workforce, the other thing that I think this course does besides being a career planning course, and it's, I'm, I'm, Speaking about this course in particular, but obviously not everyone takes the class. This is really a philo- my philosophy. It's the first time I'm thinking of it this way, but, what, but you're really helping me articulate something that I firmly believe. There is a philosophy of career planning and there is a philosophy of career decision-making that go hand in hand. 
And if you are a person that has a lot of debt that you're going to have to pay it back, you need to ensure that when you go into the workforce that you're earning a salary in a profession that is going to be able to supersede your past bad decisions. You cannot maybe afford to be a social worker as much as you would love to be a social worker. I mean, maybe you can, I don't know. There's probably some industries. I mean, I would argue that you need to do more research to see what are the industry, if your heart really says you wanna be a social worker, what are the industries that are paying social work is at the rate that you would need to be able to be paid in order to, to keep up with the cost of living in the area that you wanna live in. The other decision is you have to look at your lifestyle factors. Because if you go into that job and you hate it and it's in an environment or a city that you don't want to be in, then that also is problematic. But definitely you have to finish. You have to make sure that every credit from now on is one that you finish. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to grad school just because you already have some debt. When I started my PhD, I didn't have a lot of debt. I had under $20,000 debt for the two degrees that I had received prior to going to um, the University of Notre Dame. But I was really determined. And as you mentioned, I'm a person of faith. I said, God, I believe I'm supposed to get this PhD. If you really want me to get this PhD, it needs to be for free. I need a place that's going to pay me, that's going to pay tuition and pay me a stipend. And I had two kids at the time. I mean, I still have only two kids. I, I needed to be fully funded and I need a stipend that's going to be allowed, that's going to allow me to be able to feed these two. It was a toddler and a preschooler. They were four and nine at the time. I did get into several, so I did, first of all, I didn't apply any place that didn't have full funding. So I went to a PhD program that was fully funded. Now that meant that I had to make some other sacrifices, like making sure that my GRE score was excellent. So that meant that I didn't get to watch, I mean, I didn't watch TV. I didn't know who the housewives were for a decade. You know how now they have all these spinoffs and there were, I forget all the other shows that I never knew anything about. I mean, you guys probably made similar sacrifices. But literally, when I was at Notre Dame, there were so many things that were out on TV that I had no idea when I would go to certain events, you know, like maybe a birthday party, my daughter would be in kindergarten, you'd be with the other kindergarten moms, and they would be talking about stuff that was going on in the real world. I'd have no clue. But I think that was an important decision for me to make, because I knew that the only way I could make the PhD make sense was to be able to finish on time. And oh, by the way, I didn't finish on time. It took me two extra years to finish my PhD. So I did end up borrowing money, but thank God I didn't have loans before that. So that was, that ended up being feasible for me at the end of the, the degree. I just feel like a lot of our students or women over 50 who might still want to go back to school, it can be done, but you probably are going to have to be more creative. And there's definitely, I think, benefits and privileges that come with having to do it in a more creative way. There are skills that you're gonna pick up that maybe other students won't pick up because you had to do it in a different way. You know, I think that creativity, it's possible. And yeah, we turn off the TV. We don't know anything about the Walking Dead or the Housewives or whatever shows are, are popular because that's when we're reading, we're researching, we're submitting papers, we're making those sacrifices, but really are they sacrifices? And what do we learn from that creative thinking rather than calling them sacrifices? We just had to work differently or mm -hmm. more creatively. Mm -hmm. You know, you alluded to being on a couple of different research groups and that's the foundation of a PhD program is that research. But I'm wondering, what are you researching now? as you were talking about being involved in a couple of different research groups. 
Yeah. So one project that I've been working on for a couple of years that has really got me throwing my head up against the wall, which I believe is an idea whose time has come. It's an idea that has been rejected by multiple publications. <laughs> and I can say that lightheartedly now because I'm sort of rec I'm sort of having like this really interesting deja vu moment. So let me just tell you what it is and then you'll see the, the irony in this. So okay. about four years ago, a colleague of mine, Dr. San Stevens, she is a board certified clinical psychologist in Florida. She approached me about doing this paper about students with serious mental illness. So she was really interested in actually young adults with serious mental illness and how those mental illnesses are exacerbated by different complex situations that they have navigating higher education and how they drop out and then various other negative outcomes happen. So I was interested, but not super interested. So she and another GSU alumni, Dr. Rieko Miyakuni, who's out of the Council Educator Program, have been working on this um, manuscript. It's a thematic review of literature about students of color who are poor and have serious mental illness and how they navigate through higher education. And like I said, this paper, I believe, is a, not saying that it was the best paper when we wrote it the first time, but part of the lesson that I'm learning as a tenure-track faculty member is that an idea has to have a vacuum. It has to have a place that wants it, and it has to be the right time for it. But because of the pandemic and because of the escalating mental health challenges that all of us, not just students, but also faculty, are having, we're finding that this is an idea that although didn't seem that interesting a couple of years ago, is now having sort of a resurgence. I feel like everything I opened up this quarter is about college, mental health, and college students. I want to go back to you just for a moment mm -hmm. and tell us what you're working on. Are you doing any consulting work? Are you working with any advocacy groups? Well, mostly no, because I don't have time. When Dr. Darlene Wright was there, she's a, uh, retired from the Division of Psychology and Counseling, she and I did some consulting with some local hospitals in the South suburbs. We wrapped it up when she retired. But I really, I mean, so that was really the only thing that I've done and I loved doing it. And it happened because there had been a, a staff member who committed suicide at one of the local hospitals and the need for uh, mental health care for employees in the healthcare organization, which again, you can see the need for that again, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So it's a very intense time to be in the healthcare industry. And it was even then, like way before, there was no pandemic when that happened. It basically, it really rocked the healthcare system in the South suburbs at the time. We have this idea, oh, so-and-so would never do that, or so-and-so wouldn't be depressed, or how could so-and-so be blah, 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 blah. But it's a lot. It's a lot to be effective and on 100% of the time dealing with people with their crises. I do think I might eventually, but I haven't in a very long time. And I got involved in that project because Dr. Wright was a mentor of mine. I do have a couple more questions. One, you've talked about the different opportunities <laughs> you've had to be involved in different projects, different research. How have you been able to get involved in so many different opportunities? What's the secret to being able to explore such diverse interests? Well, you know, for me, I think it all comes back to, it doesn't align with my values. One of the things that I learned that you were asking me about the talk show I was on, it's called the Eva Kennedy Show. She has a workshop that she does that talks about staying in alignment with your values that I did many moons ago. 
And one of the things that all of these projects and all of these interests have is they all go back to my ethic of social justice. And again, I think that comes back from having spent 12 years in Catholic school. I mean, I think this idea that the society should have a moral compass and that we should operate our careers and whatever it is, raising kids in your relationships should all come back to whatever those core values are. I think that that's what the common thread is. But I have a lot of energy anyway, as long as it's something I want to be doing that's aligned with those values. I'm definitely one of those people that has to learn to say no more because every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. So as I go into this third chapter, you know, the 50 to 75 time frame years, I really, I also really love that book. I read it before I turned 50, the third chapter. And I also really feel like I have to really get very focused on a, doing a few things well. So you know, that leads me into, to wrap it up, our, my last question is, what are you reading now? Who inspires you? <laughs> so this is the graphic novel by John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, and Nate Powell. It's a four book series, and I'm reading book two. March is really Story of the Freedom Riders. And one of the reasons that I'm reading this I'm really interested in is my new obsession is the Voting Rights Act and voter suppression and how voting rights has been impacted in America. I know that's as much as we can really say because we're at the end, but I'm really enjoying the reading that I've been doing to really understand sort of where have we come from and where are we now and where do we need to go in order to protect the future of voting rights for all citizens in America. So that's one of the topics that I'm really reading about now that I love. It's been such a wonderful time talking to you today. We have so many takeaways to share with our listeners as far as how to spend your energy and staying in alignment with the values. You know, we just don't want to finish degrees just to finish degrees and check boxes. How does everything align? We really hope that you can join us again and we can explore some of these topics in more detail. Yes, it was exciting to have you, Dr. Harris. Thank you so much. It was really a lot of fun. If I could just add one more thing. Oh, please um, do. Self-care. Self-care for yourself too. We appreciate you coming to the interview. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a wonderful conversation to be with you guys for this time. We're looking forward to having you again. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy.